Before I jump into the message uh, headway here, I just want to invite um, your awareness, and I'm going to invite your prayers around a couple of things that are happening here at the church. Uh, let me just give a quick recap of what God has done in the past two years. In the past two years, God planted a seed and it birthed Connections Church. Amen. It has been incredible. We got things going in 2018 and we launched as Connections Church. 2019 was the year then of uh, kind of to get things healthy and get systems running, to have worship, to have groups, and to have some service opportunities. As we have now moved into 2020, God has been doing some very interesting things around here, and uh, our church, and particularly our leadership, our board, and our staff, and uh, some key volunteers, uh, we've been having a lot of conversations about what's going to happen with our building, and with our partnerships, and with our ministries we, we move forward. Uh, I'm, I'm genuinely uh, excited and anticipating that God is going to do some remarkable things here. Uh, already, as you've heard from the welcome and announcements, uh, that we are about to launch with the Winter Shelter Network on our site. This has been a part of the DNA that we've wanted to infuse into Connections Church uh, from the very start, that we're going to be a worshiping community, that we're going to be a community that gathers in homes and groups and circles and, and does life together, and we're going to be a serving community, and we particularly want to serve, well, I shouldn't say that, we want to serve all people. We want to serve one another, and we want to serve the neediest in our community. And God has been providing those opportunities. Please be in prayer for us as a church community that we make the wise and right decisions and that God's will will in fact be done as we strategize in 2020 what all is going to happen on our campus and from our campus out into the community. And if you have any more questions about that, just ask. Just ask, happy to talk to you about it, happy to grab a coffee, happy to keep you in the loop. It's actually really kind of too much to kind of, it kind of usurp the message right now. But there's just exciting, exciting conversations and things happening, and we're very excited for what God is going to do. With that said now, we are going to continue now with our series taking us through Jonah. I've been loving this book. Uh, here's one of the things, though, that you'll notice if you've been here the past two weeks. There's a lot in this little book. We took two weeks just to get through the first chapter, and we're going to get into the second chapter today. And if you have been a part of Connections, and you're familiar then with my preaching style, I, I do like to boil it down to a big idea, a main takeaway, how we know that God is changing us and through us wants to change the world. And I try to make it really clear and direct, and so you can walk away and hopefully not say, what was that all about? But <laughs> you know what it's about and what you're called to be about. That said, there's so much coming at us from Jonah, uh, and that's good. That's right. That's the Bible text speaking to us. But one of the things that can happen as we try and narrow down some of the focuses of this is we can lose some of the macro themes of the book. And so I want to just take a moment uh, before we move into chapter 2 to talk about a macro theme that we notice here in Jonah. And, and the macro theme is, is this, that if God wants to get you somewhere to some people for some purpose, very specifically, God is going to do it. That's a general theme we see in these very specific callings and revelations of God in, in the Scripture. Like, if God needs to turn you around, He can make the donkey you're riding on speak. 
You probably had to grow up in Sunday school to know that reference. You know, if, if God wants, needs to get you back into Egypt, he can cause a bush to catch on fire but not burn up and then speak to you through it to turn you around and get you to where you need to go. If God needs to turn your direction in life around from persecuting the church to being the champion of the church and mission to the rest of the world, he will knock you down. He will blind you for several days and speak. God will do what God has to do to get you to where you need to be. Now, that can be of great comfort or that could be of great distress, perhaps depending on your perspective. But what I want to share in this regard is that you can be assured that if God needs to use you for something, somewhere, sometime, some purpose, he's going to get you there. Amen? He's going to get you there. He's going to orchestrate events and circumstances in your life to do that thing that you are called to do. I mean, if your life comes down to, there's a character named Esther. Her life kind of came down to a moment. Everything worked together for this moment where it was for such a time as this, if you know that story, that she was at the right time, at the right place, the right person to speak God's word and to save God's people. And God did that. That should be of great, again, peace and comfort for us as the people of God, that we can't thwart God's plans by our actions or inactions, our mistakes or our successes. God's going to get it done, and that's good news. But here's the bad news, perhaps, of that revelation that we have, that God will get his, his will done. If he does have to speak to you in extraordinary circumstances, chances are the thing he wants you to do, you never want to do it on your own. And that's why he has to speak to you specifically. That's why he has to miraculously intervene to get you to where you need to go. Because if you're Moses, you ran away from Egypt, and you don't want to go back to Egypt. So if God is going to get you there, he has to intervene <laughs> in a miraculous way. And if you're Jonah, God is going to have to send a storm and control the casting of lots, and get you thrown overboard, and have you swallowed by a fish, and have that fish vomit you up on dry land. God is going to have to intervene to get you to where you need to be, because that thing that he needs you to do, you in your own nature, your own flesh, your own will, your own desire, you would probably never want to do it. Yeah, you don't get too many amens on that. <laughs> But that's how we're, so, so what does that mean for us? What this means for us is that we as a people of God, and I will speak now to we as a people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, making assumption now that we want to be fully devoted followers of his, doing his will, we can get on with the business of the clear revelation and his mandate for, for all of us. We can get on with the business of loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can get on with the business of loving our neighbor as ourselves. That clerk across the counter from you, you are to be Christ to that person today. That coworker in the cubicle that drives you crazy, you are to be the presence of Christ witnessing the good news of Jesus Christ in their life. We can get on with the things that have been revealed for us to do as the people of God. We can freely gather and worship and celebrate and glorify and praise Him. We gather in community and do life together to encourage one another. We go and we serve. 
we do things like open severe weather shelter networks and we send kids off in mission to Nicaragua and we celebrate the good work that God is doing. So we get on with this business of serving God in the ways that He's revealed for all of us to honor and obey Him, knowing that in the course of this obedience, if there is something that we have to do, He's going to get it done, right? He's going to get it done through us. Now, I will say this on this matter. I have great sympathy for Jonah. So before we get into the new material, here's the sympathy that we have for Jonah. Jonah has gotten on with the business of being a prophet, of serving God, of, of, of doing His will. But now God has to intervene in his life to call him to do something that otherwise he would never want to do. And it makes perfect sense why he would never want to do this. The people of, of Nineveh are the Assyrians and they're the enemies of the people of God. They're literally killing them. They're evil people. They're doing awful things. It makes perfect sense that he would have great reservation <laughs> to want to go there. In my own life, I'll say this. I said yes to the call of God in my life to be a pastor. And wonderfully, I never got a clear revelation of you have to go to such and such a place to serve God. God gave me the freedom, I felt, to go where I wanted to go. So I picked Colorado because <laughs> Colorado is awesome. And I'm serving God faithfully, I believe here, doing the things that he calls us to do as the people of God. Now, if God wants to get me to Texas, like it is going to take a fish swallowing me and spitting me up on dry land. And I know that's impossible because it's, that's the level of miracle that it's going to take to get me out of Colorado. But I pray that if that call would come, that we would all be willing that we would surrender, that we would sacrifice, that we would choose obedience over our will. Does it make sense? Make sense? This is one of these macro themes that we have from Jonah, that if God needs you somewhere doing something, it's going to happen. And just know that God will do it. In the meantime, get on with being faithful and have a soft heart and spirit such that you could listen and obey without rebellion and disobedience. To maybe this unique calling or move of God on your life. This is what brings us now to chapter 2. You know, Jonah has said no to God. He's run the other direction, but God says, not that easy, Jonah. You're my man, and I'm going to get you there. And here we see the great character of our God loving entire cities and wanting the gospel to go to them for repentance, and yet chasing after the one lost sheep. And Jonah is literally a one lost sheep and saying, not that easy. I'm not going to forget about you and my big plan, and we're going to get you there. So that brings us to chapter 2, and we're going to read all of chapter 2 now. This is a great, great prayer. This is sort of Jonah's turning point here. This is going to be the high point for Jonah. We're going to be like, Jonah, you're my man. You're great, and he's going to have another fall next week, but that's next week. So here we're going to pick up. Actually, I'm going to read seven, verse 17 from chapter 1, and this will lead us right in. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And that really is our key verse, our life verse. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. No, if you're, if you, if, if you're a, you know, an elementary school boy, maybe that is your life verse. You're like, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I will memorize that. The Lord commanded the fish. Blah. I mean, what kid isn't going to love that part of the story? No. What comes right before it? Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah says, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So let's take our cue from Scripture. We've done this before, connections. Say it with me. Salvation comes from the Lord. Okay, say it like you actually mean it now. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now say it like it has that exclamation mark that it actually has on the end. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is it. My friends, hallelujah, amen, let's have a great day. No, not so we quick. I got to say some more things about this. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is the central verse of Jonah, and this is the central theme, the central revelation, the central promise, the central hope of the Word of God to us is that salvation comes from our Lord. Salvation comes completely and entirely and unequivocally from our Lord. Salvation is not you do this and maybe salvation will come your way. No, it comes from the Lord. Salvation is not, well, if you meet me halfway, if you do these things, I'll do these things, and we'll meet in the middle, and then you can know salvation. No, salvation comes from the Lord, our salvation is entirely the work of our Lord through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and given to us as a gift, hallelujah, and yes, and amen, my people, yes, and amen. This is what Jonah is teaching us, is that we do not work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. Somebody better write that down, get that out there, put that on social media, because that is it. We do not work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. We worship from our salvation. We give from our salvation. We love from our salvation. We serve from our salvation. We open up the Winter Shelter Network from our salvation. We share the good news to our neighbors from our salvation. All of it flows from the assurance of our salvation. This is the big idea. 
This is the central theme of Jonah. And this needs to become for us the central theme of our lives, that we rest in the assurance, we take a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that salvation has been worked out on our behalf and given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is not insignificant. I would propose to you that almost every errant view, almost every deviation from biblical Christ-centered Christianity, almost every error that sets people off in a course in life that leads to shame, guilt, misery, self-loathing, or self-righteousness, holier-than-thouness, I'm so much better than you because I get it rightness, all of it comes from a misunderstanding that our salvation does not come from us and from our works, but our salvation comes from the Lord. That we do not work for our salvation, but we do our works, our good deeds, we share our love, we do all of these things I've just expounded upon from the salvation we have in the Lord. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the beginning of the text and bring it down to this wonderful revelation that our salvation comes from the Lord. When we pick up the text, we notice that Jonah has been in the belly of the beast here for three days and for three nights. And then comes this prayer, this praise, this part of the story that we read about. Remember, Jonah's obviously writing after the fact, and he gives us this revelation, this kind of clue as to the timeline, that it is after three days and three nights that he finally offers up this confession, this prayer, and this praise to God. I'm a stubborn guy. I will admit that. I can be really stubborn in some areas of life, but I don't think I'm this stubborn. <laughs> I, I don't think I would sit around literally stewing. Let's just pause for a moment of this. Literally stewing in the belly of this beast. You know, what's the average body temperature of, of, of like mo most of, uh, if it's a whale, it's a mammal, it's a fish, who knows? I'm not getting into all that, but we're going to say like, like 98 degrees full of seaweed and plankton and whatever else this thing is eating and just literally and just be like not gonna do it not gonna do it not okay finally <laughs> all right i'll call out to you god i mean i please don't be that here's the point does anybody have an instapot i love i i'm always preaching it's like infomercial here connection some mornings i mocked the instapot when my wife came home with it oh i have literally eaten those words many times over here here here's this here's the thing about the instapot the instapot works with temperature and pressure it's all about the temperature and the pressure but here's the miracle of the instapot i put eggs in the instapot and six minutes later there Anybody know? Nobody cooks here. Apparently, I'm the only person who cooks. There, they, they become hard. I put a potato in the Instapot, and six minutes later, they are soft. When you're feeling the pressure, when the temperature rises, preaching from the kitchen here this morning, right, friends? All right. Are you going to harden? Is your heart going to harden? Are you going to become more set in your ways and your obstinance towards God and His call and His move on your life? Or are you going to soften? 
and become moldable, breakable even, so that God can make you and take you where he needs you to go. My friends, don't be the egg man. Become Mr. Potato Head, you know, Mrs. Potato Head. We need to become the kind of people who soften when the pressure comes, when the temperature rises, when we know that God is trying to take us and make us and move us in a new direction in life. Because, my friends, you can't outrun God and you can't outlast God. <laughs> How many days is it going to take for Jonah? Praise be to God, it only took him three days. But, oh, he could have saved himself a lot of disgusting time <laughs> in the belly of the beast had he simply said, God, not my will, but yours be done. So let us become potato heads. There we go. So, finally, after three days and three nights, he finally breaks. And he turns to God. And as he turns to God here, we, we see that he has a very simple prayer. It's a very simple prayer. In fact, it really comes down to one word. Anybody catch what that one word is? His one cry from the belly of the beast. He finally asks for help. Help. Is help a bad prayer? No. Help's a great prayer. Help, help is sometimes the only prayer that is needed. And what does God do when Jonah finally gets to his breaking point and he asks for help? Is this where we find God say, well, 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 Mr. Jonah, rocking back on his heels, so you finally need me, do you? You finally want my help. Well, uh, no, no. I mean, we find this is the beauty now of this passage. What we find is God doesn't, you know, just wag his finger, stand back and aloof, e e even mock or deride Jonah for now this contrition that he has of heart. He, he welcomes him now. As a loving father, this is who our God is. The moment one of his children cries out for help, God is there. God is there when he hears his children cry out in distress for his help. If you are in the belly of the beast, if you're in a season, just, just, just cry out for help. Just cry out for help. If you're struggling at school, cry out for help. If you're struggling with some relationships, cry out for help. If you're struggling at work, cry out for help. If you're struggling in your marriage, cry out for help. If you're struggling with your health, cry out for help. Our God loves to help. Now, He doesn't always help the way we want to be helped, but He will always meet us there when He hears us cry out for help. And so, He finally prays help. And then, this whole section, this whole middle section, what we find is that Jonah is recognizing that God has been in control of this entire situation from beginning to end. God has been orchestrating these events. You hurled me overboard. You sent these waves. You sent these winds. You sent this fish. It was you all along. It was you all along. Now, before we just sort of keep going into the storyline with this, Here's what we stand back then and recognize what is happening here. If God has been in control of all of these events that have led Jonah now to the belly of this beast, 
in this place of being in distress, this place of truly, literally needing the help of the Lord, if God has been in control of it all the time, well, then God has been in control of all of these awful things that have happened to Jonah. And we begin to recognize then that what is unfolding here is what we might call a severe mercy of God. There's a book written more than 40 years ago now called A Severe Mercy, where the author writes about the severe mercies of God in his life, and we won't go into the details of this book, but it has opened up this topic of conversation of the severe mercies of God that come to us, and it's not always a popular topic to talk about. But the reality of our lives is as we look back on them, and so often as we look back, we can see at those hardest places in life what we're actually experiencing was a severe mercy from God. A severe mercy is whenever God allows us to hit rock bottom, if that's what it's going to take for us to finally call out to Him. Severe mercies happen all the time in our lives. As we're parents, we allow our children to experience severe mercies when we let them fall and fall and fall over and over and over again, falling and falling and falling until finally they can stand up and move about and grow in strength and grow in endurance and grow in persistence and grow in tenacity and grow in all those areas we need to grow in if we're going to mature to adulthood. A severe mercy is whenever a parent sees their teen get into trouble with the law and maybe lets them get into trouble with the law so that they learn there are consequences for their actions, for their choices, for their behaviors, as painful as it is to watch your children go through such hardships. A severe mercy is whenever perhaps you don't get that job that you wanted but that sets you on a course to examine who you are and what your gifts are and what you're called to. And, and, and even if it takes going back to school or moving to a new town or making incredible sacrifices, it becomes that severe mercy when through that hardship, God gets you to that place where you're now finally flourishing, right? A severe mercy, and we experience severe mercies all the time, is whenever it takes hitting rock bottom for us to finally call out to God. Our God loves us so much that He will allow us sometimes to hit devastating circumstances, to experience extraordinary pain, if God knows that through that process, we will become the people that He is calling us to be. The Bible is full of stories, really, of the severe mercies of God. The story of Joseph is the story of a severe mercy of God. I mean, Joseph is the favorite son. Joseph is living a great life. And next thing Joseph knows, he's being betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. Oh, but it gets better. He gets bought by Potiphar. And he starts working his way up. And things seem to be turning for Joseph. And then, by doing the right thing, he has false allegations brought up against him that lands him in a prison. So he begins to serve there, and he helps a couple people, and they forget about him entirely. And he languishes in this prison for years and years until at just the right time, 
and dressed the right way when God orchestrated the circumstances together, he brings Joseph before Pharaoh and he becomes second in command, really first in command. At this point, Pharaoh's just a figurehead practically, and he is in charge of saving the world, the known world at that time, from a famine that is about to beset all of the land. And then Genesis ends there in chapter 50. You have this great moment where he's able to stand then before his brothers, the very ones who betrayed him, the very ones who brought this severe, the severest of circumstances upon his life. But he now sees the mercy of God when he's able to say, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. And Joseph would say, oh, it was severe. Oh, it was not fun. <laughs> oh, I would not want to go through that again. But you know what it would also say? I wouldn't have changed it for the world because it saved the world and God's plan. Corey Ten Boom, in, in her memoir, uh, The Hiding Place, it's really a story in many ways about the severe mercy of God. I love this one section that she writes about the fleas. She and her sister are finally arrested. They're thrown into this concentration camp, and they go back, and they find their bunks under these cramped, awful, horrible circumstances that we, we can hardly even imagine. And, and she tells the story as just as they're settling down, you know, she feels this bite, and she cries out, ouch, and she realizes, fleas, we're covered in fleas. And they open up the Bible, and they read the Bible, and, they sit, and she writes it, that she reads this section from Thessalonians, which talks about giving thanks in all circumstances. And she says, I'll never be able to give thanks for these fleas. How could, how could anybody ever give thanks for these fleas? Well, the days go on and certain things happen. And her sister grows sick and her sister is knitting socks there. And Well, I'll just skip to the end. As it turns out, after this season of being in the concentration camp, whenever they asked a guard to come back to intervene in a certain situation, the guard wouldn't enter into the barracks. And then they realized, we have all of this freedom. We can keep these scriptures in here. We can have Bible studies in the evenings. We can hold hands and pray to one, with one another. We can share the good news of Jesus Christ because of the fleas. Because the guards would refuse to come in and go into that inner sanctum of the barracks where the women were held. And she was finally able to see that this was the severe mercy of God providing an opportunity for them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with their fellow prisoners. It's no fun going through a severe mercy. But on the other end of it, how good it is to give prayer and to praise to the God who offers them. That's what happens to Jonah. So that's what's happened to Jonah. He's beginning to see that even being swallowed by the fish is the severe mercy of God saving his life. So he begins to offer prayer and praise. And my friends, I would commend that simple instruction to you. Give prayer and give praise when you are struggling. Give prayer and give praise ahead of the promise. Notice here the timing. Again, the timing, I believe, is significant. It is from inside the fish. It is from inside the belly of the beast that Jonah begins to give praise and thanks to God for delivering him. But you haven't been delivered, Jonah, but he knows he will be. And he begins praising the Father, praising his God. In the midst 
of the severe mercy, my friends. Start praising God ahead of the promise. Start praising and thanking God ahead of the promise. Give thanks for the situation and the circumstances of your life, knowing that all things will work together for the good of those whom our Lord God calls, that it can even be used for the saving of many lives and the fulfillment of God's will in His world. Give prayer and give praise ahead of the struggle. When you're struggling at school, when you're struggling at work, when you're struggling in relationships, when you're struggling in the marriage, start praising God for what's coming on the other side. <clears throat> Let me drive this home now in the last few minutes that we have. This leads into one interesting statement, and I don't want to get derailed by this statement, but it will inform our ending here. He gives this interesting statement here. Uh, verses, let me read it for you. I'll just turn it to there again. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. It's hard to say a little bit about idolatry whenever you get into a sermon, but I'm going to attempt to just say a little bit about idolatry. It's one of these topics that it is so prevalent throughout all of Scripture, and yet so often glossed over because it seems so far-fetched and far-removed from our lives. But the Bible really points to the fact that idolatry is the core problem with humanity. John Calvin, in fact, reflecting upon the scriptures and the human condition, says that the human heart is simply an idol factory. We will just keep making idols. We will keep making objects. We'll keep making ideas. We'll keep making ideologies. We'll keep making our own dreams or visions or hopes. We'll make them into idols and we'll place them before God. See, that's the first and the second commandment. You will have no other gods before me. Think about that literally. What do you have before God? What do you have between you and God? What do you have in front of you that is blocking your vision from God? What do you have placed in your path that is directing your life when you're supposed to be following the path of God? Do not make for yourself an idol and place it in the way of God. Jonah had manufactured some idols. And we addressed this the first week, and I want to swing back to it now, again, without getting too distracted on it. But Jonah has created an idol. He's made an idolatry of his nation and his religion. He's made an idol of his nation so much so that he loathes and hates the other nations. He can't accept that God's grace is to go out to all peoples. He's made an idol of his own religion, of his own works. He thinks they're so righteous, so wonderful, so incredible, that he cannot stand this idea that grace would go to the people of Nineveh, and all they have to do is say, help, and God will be there for them too. But he finally recognizes, if they say help, well then, God's grace goes there too. So he's made these idols, and they turn him away. But the real problem with idols then is that they don't take God's love away from us. They take our love away from God. See, the thing with these idols then, the thing with Jonah, the thing that happens in our lives, is that idolatry doesn't remove God's love for us. It removes our love for God. It distracts our love from God. It distracts our obedience from God. 
It distracts our service from God. So, like Jonah, don't let any idols stand in the way of you and God, but turn your hearts toward him. And then he concludes, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord God commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Again, our theme verse is not that God made the fish vomit Jonah onto dry land. It is that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it would be preaching malpractice if I did not make this the opportunity and the invitation to receive the salvation that comes from the Lord. So I invite the band to come up and they're going to get ready to take us out for some worship. And as we enter into this time of extended worship, this time to reflect upon the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the love of God, I invite you to do some of that self-examination that Jonah was forced to do in the belly of the beast. Maybe you've been there three days. Maybe you've been there three weeks, three months, three years, 30 years. I don't know how long you have been in this place of distress. And I don't know if that has made you hard, it has made you bitter, and has made you obstinate towards God's grace and mercy on your life. But I pray that right here, right now, maybe in this moment, you could allow that pressure, <laughs> that temperature to soften you, to soften your heart, to soften your soul, your spirit, to soften your stance towards God and that you would turn to him and embrace his salvation, to declare salvation comes from the Lord, and I receive that salvation today. Salvation comes from the Lord, and I embrace this gift offered to me through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, was buried in the grave, and rose on the third day to show victory over sin and victory over the grave, and to welcome us into life in the resurrection life everlasting by his work on our behalf. Quit trying to work for your salvation. Quit growing hard and bitter in the severe mercy maybe that you're experiencing right now, but turn towards God and receive the gift of salvation. And maybe it's just one word that we offer up. Maybe it's just one word that you have to offer up today. Help. And he'll be there. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to worship God. Oh, Heavenly Father, this story of Jonah, this revelation that you've given us, is just truly rocking my world, shaking my soul, and driving deeper into me the goodness, the promise, the hope, the life, the love that we have for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. For my brother or my sister this morning who's been going through a severe season in life, I pray that they will now soften and understand that this could be the very mercy of God drawing them back to you. And now in this distress, in this time of need, may they call out help. Help, Lord God. Salvation comes from you. I receive it in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen.
If that's a prayer that you've offered before, if that's a prayer that you're offering up right now, that's something that we'd be honored to walk with you through, to talk with you more about, or, or even move you towards the practice of baptism, which becomes our public profession and declaration that our salvation comes from the Lord, and we want the world to know that we are washed clean, made new, and we rise to new life in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. If that's where you're at this morning, maybe put that on your card or just grab me after the worship service. I'd love to talk to you about that.